With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Tactics. Thank you so much for being with us here. We are glad that you make us a part of your day every time that you get the opportunity. This is the place where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. So we welcome you to the program as we do every time. A few quick announcements that I want to make before we get into the meat and potatoes of what we're going to talk about, because i got to tell you, this is a absolutely jam-packed show. We've got the First Baptist Church in Montgomery, which is caught on fire. We have Huntsville now becoming Alabama's largest city. And we've got a segment on Mayor Reed. And you know I always get fired up when Mayor Reed is going to be on the program. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Before we do, though, I wanted to say a very quick birthday uh, well wishes to Jessica Dawson, who's a friend of the program. She is responsible for all of the graphics. If you're looking around here, you see up there my like my tactics uh, Twitter tag, my logo here, my other logo here. Yeah, I'm, it, it's hard because it's reversed on my side. And so you guys are saying it a different way than I am. But yeah, all the logos, all the graphics. I do some of the video stuff, but she does almost all of the, the, the actual still images because she is our graphic designer here at Tactics. And just wanted to say a very happy birthday to her tomorrow and thank her for all that she does for the show. Most of it she does pro bono. And uh, when I do pay her, it's usually in food. So <laughs> very generous with her time uh, in helping me out with the show. And we certainly appreciate that. So let's go ahead and talk about something else. I will not be here for next week because I will be flying out early that morning for Amsterdam and eventually heading to Ukraine where I'll be doing some mission work in the the eastern half of Ukraine and so prayers are always appreciated not only for safe travels but also that we will have a fruitful mission while we were there so uh, next week when you're not watching the show you can take that time and pray I don't I mean maybe you're a person that prays for an hour and a half to two hours and if so man more power to you um, but we would certainly appreciate it either way and unfortunately because you guys remember, I was actually supposed to go to Ukraine a couple weeks ago, and we had to delay because of issues with my health. But it looks like I am going to be able to go. We were able to reschedule it, but that also means I will not be able to speak at a rally that I was going to go to on the Capitol steps, which is on October 16th. Originally, I thought that it wasn't going to be a conflict even with the rescheduled thing, but turns out October 16th, I'm going to be getting back quite late. And so because of that, I have sent a very apt replacement, Brian Dawson, who's with Alabama Policy Institute. The guy's a conservative, and he knows what he's talking about. So instead of me talking about media bias at that rally, it's going to be him. But, uh, you know, you might even be getting the better deal with Brian. He really knows what he's talking about. So go and see him at the Capitol Steps at the rally on October 16th. That's an event that I really hate that I'm going to miss. But, you know, duty calls. And as much as I love politics... Preaching the gospel to people is just more important. And so 
I'm going to be off doing that, but that does not mean you guys cannot have a fantastic time at the October 16th rally. So be sure to do that. You can check out the details on Facebook. There's going to be, I think, eight speakers. It's a, a great place to meet like-minded people and to show your support. And there's going to be some really fantastic speeches. I won't be one of them, unfortunately, but Brian will. And I think uh, there's going to be a few other people there. Uh, I know that there's going to be eight speakers. So I, I believe the event lasts like two to three hours. But something that is well worth your time and the weather is getting a lot nicer. So it's not going to be like sweltering heat like it always seems to be when I go to the Capitol steps. <laughs> seems like every event I do at the Capitol, it's always really freaking hot or freezing cold. There's no in between. But regardless, that's what's going on. So now on to the news of the day. First of all, and this one is a really big story that hasn't got a ton of media attention. And I get it because it's so local. But we're actually going to get into why I think it's not getting a ton of media attention a little bit later. There was a fire at First Baptist here in Montgomery. And, you know, it's not a church that I've attended. I'm not even a Baptist, so it's not my congregation, but they think it's arson. And that is an attack on a person's faith. And even though I, I certainly would align religiously and theologically much more with the Baptist than I would, say, a Muslim, I'd be saying the same thing if this were a mosque or a synagogue or, uh, I don't even know, temples or, or whatever else other religions use. An attack on a religion, I mean, first of all, it's a crime. It's illegal to set fire to a building regardless because you never know what you're going to damage. You never know who you're going to damage. There might be someone in the building you don't know. And so there's lots of reasons why it's a terrible idea and morally wrong regardless. You could catch other buildings on fire, so on and so forth. But an attack on this, and, and done specifically because of religion and what someone believes, is completely anti-American. The idea is we can all live together and disagree, but coexist peacefully. That's what tolerance actually looks like. You know, we hear a lot about tolerance, and, and it's part of my motto of the show. Um, speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. It's absolutely true that tolerance is not love, and it doesn't meet that high standard that Christ set for, for Christian people. But it is also true that tolerance is an important thing. And the idea that we can disagree and it doesn't mean that I wish ill towards you or in this case actually try to burn your place of worship because of that is a key tenet of what it means to be an American. Uh, they do suspect arson. Montgomery Fire and Rescue put this out the other day and, and this actually happened sometime yesterday between 2 and 4 a.m. on Thursday morning. And the damage... I mean, I wouldn't say that it's terrible. We've got some pictures that we took from the Montgomery Advertiser that they put out. It's not horrible by any stretch of the imagination. So you can see there uh, you have the some of the floors tore up. Part of that, I don't know, it looks like a ticket booth to me. I, I don't know exactly what that is or what its purpose is. Maybe it's a baptistry and it just has that like, when I'm not sure. Either way, not really important. And, and you can see another image here where there was a pew it was damaged pretty badly. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's still terrible. It's still horrific. It's It still takes a sick individual to torture a place just because it's a place of worship that he happens to disagree with. But you can see there, if you, if you go back to this and then and then look at the, the burnt pew, and, and there were more pictures and there were pieces of carpet that got burned, but the damage really isn't terrible. In fact, they're going to be having service inside the building on Sunday, from what I hear. And so... Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to excuse the attack at all because there wasn't a, a ton of damage or the building didn't burn down completely. That, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying I think it's something that we can all be grateful for that the damage was kind of minimal and mostly cosmetic. And so th there's not structural damage. The building is unsafe now. 
And that's important because this, regardless of your religion or, or whether you would agree with the people inside the building or not, this is a historic building for the city of Montgomery. This is a building that has been here there for 192 years. Now, think about that. 192 years. That means it wasn't real long after this country was settled. I mean, only a few decades because the, the Constitution's just a little bit north of 245 years old. So, um, you know, looking at this, that means that this building's not a lot younger by our perspective than the founding of this country. And so this is a very old historic building. And another thing, too, this church on, on Perry Street, First Baptist, Kay Ivey is a person that attends this church. Apparently, this is the congregation that she usually goes to. I, I didn't, didn't know that until this story came out, but Kay Ivey actually released a statement about it the other day. Uh, I was going to read it, but I mean, it's pretty standard stuff. N nothing, you know, to complain about. It, it was a good statement. She said she hated the fact that this happened to her church and, and she's very bothered by it, which I mean, I don't see how you could not be. I, I would react the same way if my church were attacked like this as well. But then a, a thought struck me. Was this church attacked because it's Kay Ivey's church? Now, personally, I'm somebody that follows politics. I read a lot about the governor, and I had no idea that First Baptist was the church she attended. So maybe I'm just grasping at straws here. This is, is strictly speculation, and I want to make that very clear. I don't have any inside information. I'm not getting, you know, I'm not talking to a source that I can't tell you about, which I do on the program sometimes, but this is not one of those cases. I, I am just you know, throwing this out there to see what people think. And, you know, I, I just want to make it clear, I don't have anything to lead me to believe that that was the motivation. But was it? Is this somebody that doesn't like the governor? Or maybe doesn't like the governor's religion and because of that attacked her church? Maybe this was somebody that had their heart set on attacking a church and they weren't sure which one they were going to go with. So because they really don't like KIV either, they just kind of figured they'd kill two birds with one stone and attack the church that KIV attends. I mean, usually the people that are torching churches, with a few rare exceptions, they're not people that know a whole lot about churches, and so it doesn't really matter to them which church they attack, normally speaking. I mean, there, there are sure, surely some exceptions to that. But normally that's the case. And so my question is, did KIV being someone who goes to that congregation, is that a motivation for this? We don't know, but if something about that comes up, we will certainly let you know about that. But one thing that is disturbing, and one reason that I'm, I think actually that this might be a factor, I mean, I am making a guess, but it is an educated guess, and it's not based on nothing. It's just a hunch and based on some recent trends that we're seeing. Could be a complete coincidence. And I would not really be all that surprised if it was a coincidence. But the truth is, there are churches that are being attacked, vandalized, and burnt all over the country. This is a trend that has been happening, not just in America, but all over the world. And so to kind of give you an idea about that, Canada especially has seen an unprecedented level of attacks on churches in just the past few months. I'm not talking about something that's been going on, you know, a trend that's been happening for a decade, although... If you look at it, I believe that that's actually also up, but it's not like, you know, a giant spike or anything. But if you're looking over the past few months, it is a pretty big spike. And so one of the stories that I wanted to reference here, because I don't think that this gets talked about or gets nearly enough media attention. You can look here uh, in a article from True North, which, by the way, is a Canadian news source. 
Uh, you can see the headline there about 68 churches that have been vandalized or burned since the residential schools announcement. So what this centers around, and, and when, when you see residential schools announcement, I need to explain a little bit. Uh, the 68 churches in Canada have been vandalized, burned, or desecrated since the announcement last month of the apparent discovery of graves found near a residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia. So for those of you that are unaware of this story, and I've only been kind of following it, so I'm by no means an expert, but apparently there were some child graves that were found in an area that was controlled by the church, and they believe that the church, and this is a long time ago now, these are graves that would have been, you know, decades old. So this is not, not a recent development. Uh, they found the corpses of indigenous people, and they believe that people that were running the churches were murdering, you know, Eskimos, Native Americans, that kind of thing, and burying them in sort of shallow graves in land that controlled by the church. And you know, I haven't followed that story really closely, but here's the thing. A lot of these attacks are happening not to the church where this was discovered and not even near that. And so what a lot of people are suspecting, and I think that there's good reason to believe this based on the way that it's happening, is a whole bunch of people that wanted to attack churches anyway are now just using this as an excuse to attack any church just wherever they happen to live. And, you know, we, we've seen this in other places as well, there are people that, for example, have an animosity towards ICE in Seattle. You know how many illegal immigrants are in Seattle? It ain't many. It's pretty far north. But these people have an animosity towards ICE here in our country because of the illegal immigration thing, and they'll attack an ICE building basically just using random events that happen on the border, uh, some of them not true, like this most recent one with the uh, whipping of the person trying to come across the border when it turned out that was just a piece of the reins and it was a complete lie. And we actually have video footage to prove that it was just a made up, you know, crock of crap, basically. Um, it's the same kind of thing. They just, it's not really that the people that they're attacking did anything wrong. It's that they're angry and don't like this group anyway. And so they use this as an excuse to go forward with attacking people. And that is the conclusion that a lot of people have made. Even Kevin, or even Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, who is by no means somebody on the right came out and denounced the attacks because this has become such a big problem in Canada. And some of these attacks were happening even before this discovery was made. For example, there were several churches that were attacked and, and burned even because these were churches that would not comply with the COVID-19 stuff. And we saw some of this, not on the same scale, but similar here in America. You'll remember that there were stories uh, of churches being attacked in Texas, there were stories of people like leaving nails in the parking lot, trying to pop people's tires when they did the drive-in services in Mississippi. Like We've seen stories like this even here in America and in Canada where this stuff is, it was locked down much tighter than us. People were in an absolute panic. There were a lot of terrorists that, I mean, because that's what they are, uh, using violence to try to put forward and, and further a political goal. That is terrorism. That's the textbook definition of it. And so these people were going into churches and burning them down because these were churches that continue to hold worship services despite shutdown orders. And so these are things, what's happening here is there's a lot of things that people are actually trying to get to. They're trying to find some kind of excuse to attack people that they already don't like. And so they're just waiting for a news story to pop up and be like, 
oh, that's it. Let's go ahead and attack that church now. That's what's actually going on here. And like I said, the, the proof here is that these attacks have actually been going on since before the announcement of these graves being discovered because of the COVID thing. And unfortunately, the church is under attack worldwide. And we're seeing this in America, too. This is not something that is only in Canada. If you look at this headline, which comes from the Washington Times, Catholic churches are being attacked. And there are other denominations of churches being attacked. It's just that, you know, Catholics keep up with stuff like this because they're so organized. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops reported 93 incidents as of August, 2000, uh, August 24th in 28 states, so not even just in one location, since May 2020. May 2020. That's only a little over a year ago. And we've already had 93 attacks on Catholic churches. Continuing on including arson, statues beheaded, limbs cut, smashed, and painted, gravestones defaced with swastikas and anti-Catholic language, and American flags next to them burned. That figure may be low, C.J. Doyle, Catholic Action League Executive Director, said. The list, lifts, sorry, the list left off 12 of, thir uh, of the 15 incidents during that period in Massachusetts, but did include the Molotov cop did not include Sorry, but did include a Molotov cocktail thrown last year at a church door in, in Waymo. So that was an attempted arson, obviously. Putting a Molotov cocktail together and throwing it into a building or trying to throw it into a building, that you're attempting to burn the building when you do that. And so he's saying, yeah, I know of exactly, I know of at least 15 incidents in Massachusetts. And 12 of them were left off of the list that had the 93, which means actually that number is probably pretty low. Now, those attacks might be higher in Massachusetts than in other places, but the point is it's happening. Now, whether they're trying to justify it through churches breaking COVID-19 protocols or, or whatever else it is, Christians are being attacked in this country. And unfortunately, I think what we're doing is we're seeing the evolution of this. Because first, they were just kind of nudging us. You know, the, the watchword of the day was bake my cake, bigot. If you're a Christian, you can't operate in a business and actually exercise your faith. And then they got a little more aggressive and shut us down and said, you can't go to church at all. We're shutting you down. And if you try to show up and worship, we're going to lock you up. And it's for your protection. Now there's people just straight up going and burning churches. And I mean, this has always been a problem throughout the history of the church, but it's getting pretty bad right now. Now, we're not at like narrow and Caligula levels of it yet. I, I understand that. We're not having uh, the Roman Emperor Domitian putting together armies and, and brute squads to take us out. I, I understand that. But I'm just saying the anti-Christian animosity is starting to reach a fever pitch in this country. And I'll tell you why. It's because there are two worldviews really at war with one another now. It's the same fight that we've been having for eons. Will we serve the true God or the spirit of the age, the gods of this world, the elementary principles of the world, as Paul put it? Because that's really the fight that we're having. Are we going to sacrifice our kids to the gods for convenience so that we'll, we may have a more prosperous life like they did in ancient times? Or are we going to actually live by the morals that God revealed to us both at Sinai and through his son, Jesus Christ? 
That's the choice we've got. These are completely, fundamentally incompatible worldviews. And they cannot coexist. There is one or there is the other. There is no walking the road in between. Jesus Christ did not leave enough room open for that. You either follow him or you don't follow him. That's it. And the reason that you're put in that position is because a follower of Christ can follow Christ by himself and he still has to evangelize and he still has to speak truth uh, when he sees evil. But the truth is, at the end of the day, he can live being the only Christian in the world and still be working out his religion with fear and trembling regardless of what everyone else does. The reason that the, the two ideologies cannot coexist is because the other side will not allow it. They will not tolerate someone who follows God instead of their edicts. They won't do it. And this has been true all throughout the Old Testament. All the pagan nations, they were the same way with Israel. And, and so we're just living out exactly what's been going on, the struggle that mankind has had since the beginning of time. Will we follow God or will we follow the Parthenon of pagan gods? It's, those are the only two options at this point. And so that's really what we're seeing. This is, real, this is just a realization of that. Now, can you imagine if this same thing, 90 plus synagogues, 90 plus mosques, we're being attacked, vandalized, or burned. Can you imagine the media outrage that would happen? I mean, we would be talking about nothing other than that for weeks on end. And yet when it's a bunch of Catholic churches, and again, I said that number is probably low based on some of the incidents that we've heard about recently, and that's not even counting Protestant churches, non-denominational churches. For example, this Baptist attack that happened here in Montgomery that's not something that would be counted in that because they're not Catholics. And so what's the actual number? Two, three, four, five hundred? I, I don't know. But the point is, it's going largely unreported by the media. And why is this the case? Keep in mind that Joe Biden, our house plant in chief, is indeed a Catholic. The man is someone that claims to be a devout Catholic and says that his faith is extremely important to him. Why would he not say anything? Apparently, this guy who they interviewed at the uh, uh, the Washington Times, that the article that we just saw, this guy is the leader of a, a big Catholic organization. He has reached out to Joe Biden and asked him to condemn the attacks, and he hasn't done it. Why? This doesn't make any sense. Except it kind of does. And I'm going to show you why right now. So look here. This is from that same Washington Times article. Worshippers arrived to Mass to find abortion graffiti defacing church signs, sanctuary entry doors, garden signs, and the wall surrounding the building. The police department said in a Monday statement, the spray-painted messages included, My Body, My Choice, Bands Off Our Bodies, Vandals Also Sprayed Over the Word Life on a Respect Life Garden Stone, to make it read, respect bodily autonomy, as shown in photos posted by police. Now it makes sense. Now, I don't know what the motives are in every single one of these 93 plus attacks. I'm not sure. Maybe even a majority of them were not fueled by people that are attacking the Catholic Church because of its stance on abortion. But the point is, there's some that are. 
And since that's the only motive that we know from these attacks, at least as, as far as I can tell, maybe the reason Biden's not exactly chomping at the bit to talk about the attacks on churches that are supposedly part of his denomination are because he doesn't want to have the tough con uh, conversation of, oh yeah, and the reason that they're doing this is because they support abortion and the Catholic Church doesn't. You see, Biden ain't going to touch that story with a 10-foot pole because it paints him in a bad light on two different fronts. First of all, it points out to the world something that everyone already knows, that he is acting against his own faith, his own religion, by being a supporter of abortion when his church says that it's murder. And then the second half of that is he does not want the optic of we have radical church-burning pro-abortion advocates going around burning buildings just because they disagree with people on abortion. He does not want to talk about that. It's the same thing with the Black Lives Matter where they keep saying, no, it's, it's a mostly peaceful protest. You know, I, sure, there's buildings burning behind me and people setting cars ablaze and throwing concrete center blocks at one another. And but yeah, it's mostly peaceful. That's what's going on here. You see, it's not about truth and it's not about right and wrong. It's about the narrative that can be crafted and how many people we can get to the polls in 2022. That's what's actually going on here. And when you understand that, all of this actually makes a lot more sense. Sad, but true. But that's part of the reason, and, and now you have some context and understand why I've, I've looked into this and said, maybe this church being K. Ivy's church has something to do with why they chose to arson this particular one. Why they chose to set this particular church on fire and try to burn it to the ground. Because even though you all know that I have my disagreements with Ivy on a lot of things, and I'm very vocal about that. At the end of the day, she has been pretty good on the issue of abortion. Not as good as she should be. But by and large, she has been an outspoken advocate for the stance of being pro-life. And I do commend her on that. And it may also be the reason why people are attacking this church. At least that would be consistent with the trends that we are seeing in Canada and in America and in other places across the globe. So it could be that. It could be her rhetoric against Joe Biden's vaccine mandate, which, of course, you know, has been that's been kind of a topic of conversation recently. So maybe that's it, because that would be more consistent with what's going on in Canada. And, and like we said, we've seen attacks on churches in America that do uh, that have gone to church despite shutdown notices and whatnot as well. So it, it could be that. I don't know. Might just be a coincidence, but we will have to see and we'll definitely try to keep you up to date on that. So whatever the motive is, I just really hope they bring these people to justice. That ultimately is what I would want more than anything else. Another interesting story that came about, and this is actually an older story. It's one that happened while I was gone, but it, I thought it was pretty cool. So I figured I'd mention it. Alabama's largest city is no longer Birmingham. It's Huntsville. So the 2010, or sorry, the 2020, the results of the census actually came out while I was gone. And Huntsville is now the largest city in the state of Alabama. So that's pretty cool. You can see this from WSFA 12. It's been talked about for quite some time, but now it's official. Huntsville is the biggest city in the state of Alabama. In a report just released by the U.S. Census Bureau, Huntsville's population hit 215,006 in April 2020. 
That's an 11.2% increase since 2010. Holy cow. Man. Seriously, think about that. An 11.2% increase in population in just a span of a decade? That's a lot. That is a very fast-growing area. I mean, think about it in this terms. This is an exact math, but it's roughly, you know, somewhere in the ballpark. Let's say if you walked out into uh, the city of Montgomery and there's 100 people there, that means if you added 11 people but did that for every 100 people in the city, that's how much growth that is. That's a big, big spike for a city. And also the other three major cities, the one that we're currently in, the capital city, and Birmingham and Mobile have actually all gone down recently. Uh, let's look at Birmingham's population and its recent decline. Birmingham previously took the crown as the largest city in Alabama, but state leaders have been predicting Huntsville to make the jump to the top for the past few years. According to that same 2020 census report, Birmingham's population dropped to 200,733. That's a negative 1.5% decrease since the 2010 census. Yee. So what's the difference in these two? And what's going on with Montgomery's population and Mobile's population? Although, you know, to be fair, we really should look at the population of all of these just to, you know, give some clarification here. So if you look, these are the population from AL.com of the four major cities in the state of Alabama. And you'll notice that Birmingham's population has dropped a lot. And Huntsville's has grown exponentially. Montgomery's, it grew some and then kind of leveled off from 2010 to 2020. And so we haven't really changed that much. Mobile had been stable, but has dropped off a little. But the point is, all three of the other cities right now are in decline. I mean, are we in a catastrophic decline? No. I don't think that's fair to say. But you look at, you know, Birmingham used to be well over 300K. And now it's barely above 200 and has been surpassed by Huntsville. That's not a small deal. And the reason for that, I think, is pretty obvious. What is different about Huntsville and the other areas? Well, Huntsville does have some advantages. It's, it's recently had a, a pretty big upsurge in business. But the pro-business policies are probably the cause of that. And the fact that, you know, they have a Republican, Tommy Battle, who is the mayor of that city, who is a fiscal conservative and believes in saving money and uh, even ran for governor against KIV recently. I think that that's got a, a big thing to do with it. I mean, you look at cities like Detroit and Chicago, th those places have been under Democrat leadership forever. And you see what's happened to them. And even though Montgomery just recently actually had Strange as a Republican mayor. Yeah, we had a Republican mayor, but was he fiscally responsible? Not really. He kind of liked spending money and didn't seem to have a problem with taxing people. And so uh, at best, it was a moderate Republican. And so I think that these policies, you know, just kind of bear it out. When you actually create an environment where people are safe secure, there's good schools for their kids, and it's business friendly, that's how you get Huntsville.
as long as you do those few things, people are going to flock to your city more or less. I mean, unless there's some kind of weird outlier there. So, I mean, at the end of the day, you just got to look at the scoreboard. Liberty does attract people even when people don't necessarily understand why. We've seen this in the whole red versus blue state thing. The state that is losing people the fastest, in fact, for the first time in its history, California's population went down in the past census. You know what state is the fastest growing? Texas. And so even people that may be socially liberal in places like New York and California, those people are fleeing those blue states to come to places where there is more economic freedom. Now, the concern for that is that they're going to ruin it because <laughs> then they'll vote for the exact same policies that they don't realize drove them out of their former state. But the point is that really is just sort of a case in that. And Montgomery, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a mayor that does that. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But I think that it's pretty clear that that's part of the reason that we're seeing what we are. So just keep it free. Always err on the side of liberty. Keep taxes as low as you can. Keep spending as low as you can and let people figure it out for themselves. That's the idea that this country was founded on. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a second on tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. Hey, everybody. As always, thank you so much for listening to us here on Tactics. And I did want to drop some fantastic news from the other night. The Atlanta Braves did indeed clinch the National League East Championship. And so we are going to October. That's what every baseball fan hopes for at the beginning of the season. They want to see their team in October, and the Braves fans are getting their wish. I know a lot of you guys are Braves fans. A lot of you are here in Braves country. And so I just wanted to say a little something to the Braves. I got to tell you, this has been a tough year for them. I mean, they've had to fight all kinds of injuries. There was a point in the season where we had basically no outfield. We couldn't find a catcher. We were having to use rookie catchers because all of ours got injured. There were problems with keeping a pitching rotation going just because of how many pitchers got injured. This has been a record year for injuries in Major League Baseball anyway, and the Braves certainly had their fair share of that. But this is a tenacious little team. They have been able to pull back from it. Even with uh, the loss of Ronald Acuna Jr., which was a massive blow to the Braves, man, they were able to pull it out, and props to them. Freddie Freeman's playing really well right now, which makes me feel really good about going into the postseason. When that guy is hot, he does really well. We've got Ozzie Albies. We've got Austin Riley, who is batting above 300, and on top of that, he's, he's really turned into a fantastic third baseman. I mean, you could go through, and I'm sure that I'm, I'm leaving out all kinds of names, especially Dansby Swanson, who, I mean, that guy, and uh, he's just such a clutch player. And that's one of the things I love about him. This has been such a fun team to watch, and sometimes they make you nervous, but they get things done, and I really like that. And that's part of the reason I actually didn't have a show last night is because I was watching my Braves pound the Phillies with a 5-3 score to clinch the National League East, and I am so proud of them. Had a really fun time watching this season, and I got to say I like our chances. Lots of good teams out there. The Tampa Bay Rays, who is the Montgomery Biscuits' parent team, they actually set a record this season for franchise wins in, in a single season, and so props to them on that one. 
But you've got the Giants, you've got the Dodgers. We're going to see those guys in postseason. But I think the Braves can pull it out. I really do. I think we've got a fantastic team this year, and it is not going to be easy. But I think that we can do it. And so I just wanted to say congratulations to the Atlanta Braves. Acknowledge their really fantastic achievement here. And in commemoration of this, I'm going to take my mug here, which is actually made out of a real baseball bat, and just take a, a swig of victory. I love baseball. Such a great sport, and I'm so looking forward to seeing the Braves in postseason. Hopefully we'll see them in the World Series. We'll keep you up to date on all of that. In the meantime, chop on, friends. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And welcome back, everybody, to Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thanks so much for being with us here on the program. As always, we appreciate any time you were able to do for us, and, and thanks for uh, the... <coughs> Excuse me. Man, it's just uh, not acting right. But anyway, we will soldier on. Mayor Reed is a garbage human being. I know technically this is not news it doesn't make it any less true. And to prove my point, here we go. This is actually an older story from August 17th, but I got sick and, and this story was just too, like it, it grinded on me way too much to not talk about it. And it bothers me that not more people did talk about it when it was actually happening. Because I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen a local official say anything like this. This is one of the most astounding things that I've ever heard of. So to put this story into context before we actually dive into the meat of it, Mayor Reed was pushing really hard for an anti-discrimination law. Now, what this actually should have been called is the Bake My Cake Bigot Law, because we all know the cases that have been happening over the past several years where like a gay couple will come into a bakery and the person is a Christian and they say, hey, uh, bake me a wedding cake celebrating me, uh, me and my gay lover's pretend wedding. And the Christian's like, yeah, that's against my religion. I'm not doing that. And even though the Supreme Court case actually found in favor of the baker in that case, and that is being litigated out more than once, and, and they're actually probably going to wind up going back to the Supreme Court with the same guy, without getting into all that history, Despite all of that happening, Mayor Reed decided it was time for him to push for a law that would say to that Christian baker here in the city of Montgomery, uh, no, you have to bake their cake. It doesn't matter that you disagree with it. doesn't matter that you would be lending your artistic talent. Well, if that's the case, you just need to shut down your cake shop. And I'm sorry, that's just the way that it is. That is because Mayor Reed has always cared more about pleasing the people at the DNC than he has the people of Montgomery. This has always been his M.O. But nonetheless, this is just the latest iteration of that. Now, this particular law is an absolute nightmare because it violates a slew of property rights. I mean, you're essentially forcing someone to grant access to your property and your resources without your consent. Uh, there's a freedom of association issue there. You have the freedom to not associate with somebody or not do business with them if you don't want to, regardless of the reason. And then there's also the freedom of religion violations. I mean, I think that one's pretty obvious. You, you have a freedom to act out, not just to 
have your religion inside a church, but remember that in the First Amendment, one of the things that is stated, and I realize the First Amendment is, is for federal law, but I'm saying freedom of religion as a principle is being violated here, because in the First Amendment, one of the things that it says is uh, Congress shall make no law uh, of any establishing a state religion, essentially, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's very important. That second part of it is a really important part because what it's also saying is, look, the citizens of the United States do have a right to exercise their religion the way that they want. That wasn't something that was evoked on the states, but it was saying that Congress needs to, uh, Congress shall make no law doing that, and they also have to respect that other people are going to have religious differences and you have to allow them to act out their religion and what their religion teaches. And that would be completely violated if it says you have to celebrate something that your religion teaches as sin and you're required by law to do so. And so th there's a number of reasons, and I've done segments on this because, remember, I actually got started in radio right around the time this debate was happening on the national level. And so I've done countless segments on this. If you want to go through all the reasons why it's a terrible idea, you can go through any of them. I'll send them to you if you can't find them. But the irony in all of this, for this city particularly, because every time I've talked about the story, it's always been on the national level because we haven't had a local story do this. This is Mayor Reed trying to enact an anti-discrimination law, which is the Bake My Cake Bigot Law, on the city of Montgomery. And I don't know if it would actually cause something like this to happen. I don't know if there's going to be some lesbian couple that walks into a Christian bakery somewhere here in town, like Ligers, I think is actually and demand that they bake them a wedding cake. I don't know if that would happen, but if it did, this anti-discrimination law would say, yes, that Christian has to make that cake regardless of how they feel about it. And if that is the case, the irony here is the people that it would affect most, just based on my study, is black people. And if you don't believe me, take a look at this. This is a survey that was actually done. It was a, a Pew Research did it back in 2019, so pretty recently. And what it did was it just polled what people thought about gay marriage and whether or not they approved of it based on race. <coughs> Excuse me. Still having some problems here. Um, but if you look at that, in the 2019 version of the survey, you'll see white people approved of it 62%. And Hispanic people approved of it 58%, but only 51% of black people approved of it. So barely over half approved of same-sex marriage. And by the way, that's just asking about the marriage question. It's not saying whether homosexuality is morally right or wrong. I actually couldn't find the numbers on that one, unfortunately. But that's a pretty good indicator because I, I don't imagine that the numbers would be radically different. And this has been true, you can see in that chart there, that it goes back a long time. Historically, black Americans have always been the most hesitant to accept homosexuality as a moral good. And the reason is because they tend to be more religious than their white or Hispanic counterparts. And by the way, that's a compliment. In that sense, I wish white people tended to be more like black people because, like Paul, I want all people to be Christians. Like God, I want all men to come to repentance and to have a relationship with him. That's my goal. And so the black community does a better job of that, and because of that, they're more hesitant to accept sinful things. Remember, Montgomery is a 70% black city. And so if there are people that wouldn't be affected by this, whether it's in the baking industry, the florist industry, 
uh, people that are ministers or that run wedding venues or, you know, any number of other things, you know who's probably going to be getting that business? Probably white people. You know, the, the few white people that are left in Montgomery, it's going to go to them or it's going to go to people outside the city of Montgomery. When you're talking about a majority black city, and, and again, like I said, they, they've historically been the ones that are most resilient to that. They've been the ones that most reject homosexuality, and that's a compliment. If that is the case, and it is based on the numbers, the people that would be hurt by this the most, the people that would likely be prosecuted, it's not going to be white people. It's going to mostly be black people. I'm not saying white people wouldn't be involved with it too, because they probably would be. But you're going to see an awful lot of black people that would be affected by this law and, and be either forced to comply against their will or refuse to comply and then have a lawsuit against them. And so it, it just is really interesting to me. And, you know, I, I would, I don't want this to happen, but I would tend to guess, especially because of the numbers we just saw, that if a gay person walked into a Christian bakery demanding that they bake their cake, it would probably be a black baker and a white gay person. That's probably what would happen in Alabama, in, in Montgomery, Alabama, just because of the demographics and the way that the races stack up. Now, I'm not trying to make it into a racial thing. I'm just saying that it's ironic that Mayor Reed constantly talks about that. The guy's a, a massive race baiter and wants to make everything about race. And yet this is his pet project and the thing that he was most upset that didn't pass. And the people it would affect the, the most is the black community here in Montgomery. And remember, those polls, those numbers that I was looking at, that's nationwide polling. That's not the Bible Belt. And I imagine in Montgomery, Alabama, your numbers are going to be much higher in all demographics across the board, regardless of race. And so you probably have far fewer than 51% of black people approving of it. I mean, it's, you know, the overall wouldn't even be at 51% in the state of Alabama. And so, you know, you're, you're going to see much lower numbers of approval there because, again, the numbers we were looking at, those are nationwide polling statistics. So you might be thinking, all right, well, Sounds like Mayor Reed is a garbage human being for trying to force Christians to do things that they don't want to do or violates their religion. Well, that is correct, but that's not actually what I was talking about. What I was actually talking about is Mayor Reed's reaction when the bill failed. So what happened is this whole thing came up to a big debate, a, a, a big fever pitch, and it was going to be put on the agenda for the meeting to be passed, and it got voted down by one vote. So Mayor Reed's bill did not pass the city council. So, yeah, good. It's a victory for us, right? Yeah, absolutely. Didn't want the thing to pass. I think we really dodged a bullet in this community by doing so. However, the way that Mayor Reed reacted to it is one of the most stunning things I've ever seen from a local elected official. So let's go ahead and read that right now. This is from the Montgomery Advertiser. Reed said the two-month-long process leading to the vote showed that he was wrong to tell businesses how far the, the city has come. If the vote failed, he said, he would be forced to tell businesses that value diversity and inclusiveness that, quote, maybe this isn't the right place for that project because I can't stand behind it. Maybe this isn't the place for what your employees are looking for because I can't in good faith, uh, I can't tell you in good faith that this city shares your values and your vision. He also threatened to give Birmingham Mayor Randall Woodfin's cell phone number to those businesses. Birmingham's council passed a similar ordinance in 2017. 
quote, they've learned from their mistakes, Reed said. That is one of the most childish things I've ever seen from an adult po uh, politician. And remember, I make a living making fun of politicians. It's my job to point out when they're doing something stupid or childish. And I don't think even I have seen something this stupid and childish from a politician. At least not a local one. You know, maybe from AOC, but I want you to think about this. This guy is literally saying, well, if you don't pass the law that I put forward, I'm just going to tell businesses not to even come here anymore. I am going to go out of my way to try to economically harm my city and present less economic opportunity for people within my city because I'm mad that the vote didn't go my way. That's worse than I'm going to take my ball and just go home. That's getting into, I don't like that you guys are playing the game that I don't like in a way that I don't like. So I'm just going to burn down the entire gym so no one can ever play again. I mean, that's the kind of scorched earth tactics that Reed is trying to go here. First of all, he's trying to bully people into doing what he wants. He's just folding his arms and saying, nope. Nope, if you don't vote for it, then I'm going to try to drive businesses out of Montgomery and send them to Birmingham just because you're not doing things the way I want them to do. What is wrong with you, dude? Seriously, I've never seen a politician that wanted to torpedo his own city and his own constituents just to spite them. Holy cow. Even by the extremely low standards that I set for Mayor Reed. That's one of the worst things I've ever seen a politician do. I mean, it really is just absolutely stunning how he could do something this, I mean, first of all, politically idiotic. But second, like, you don't even want to support the city that you're the mayor of because you don't like the way a vote went on a completely unrelated topic? All right, then. This is the guy that has such big political aspirations. And I don't know, maybe that kind of attitude works in the DNC. But I hope people, I don't think they will because voters have very short memories. But I would, I would like to think that somebody would remember that come election day that the guy was willing to uh, basically point the gun at, its, at the city's head and say, well, if you don't do things the way I want, then I'm just going to do everything I can to stop you. From... I don't even know how to respond to that. I've, As somebody that, that does this for a living, you tend to have certain responses or certain like trains of thought that guide you in a certain way when an event happens. This is unprecedented. I don't think I've ever seen a politician do something like this. And because of that, I don't really have a, a great like, way to think about it. It took me a while to process this, even though this story, you know, happened a few weeks ago. Um, I will say this. I would have at least admired his conviction and his courage if he had resigned. Like, I still would have thought he was dead wrong. Still would have thought that this was a horrible bill that was going to cause people to have to choose between losing their business or violating their religion. I mean, that that's pretty horrible just on its surface. But I, I expect that out of Reed because, you know, he's an authoritarian leftist. That's just who the man is. And so on that, eh, he didn't really surprise me. I, I kind of saw that one coming. But what's so astounding about this one is I would have at least thought that Reed had some sincerity, like some courage of his convictions if he had said, you know what, 
this was the bill I really wanted. And uh, this city is just not as progressive as I thought it was. I think you guys are kind of a bunch of backwards rubes that, um, you know, even though the city, the city council and the, the city itself is incredibly diverse. Um, actually, it's not even really diverse. It's just majority of people that are typically considered a minority. <laughs> but nonetheless, I mean, uh, he, he could have just come out and been like, you know what? The city really isn't what it thought I thought it was. It doesn't share my value, so I'm going to resign. I think it's better for the city. I think it's better for y'all. Um, and uh, I just I don't want to be a part of the city anymore. Y'all suck. I'm out of here. Like at least that shows some courage. It, it shows that he's willing to sacrifice something for his ideals. This is do it my way, or I'm going to pitch a fit and make life as miserable for you as possible. And there are probably politicians that take that stance and do that anyway, but at least they have the good sense not to tell people they're going to do it. Nonetheless, here we are with Mayor Reed doing this. But I think that that really goes back to the nature of what authoritarianism is. Remember that authoritarians are authoritarians. In other words, they want a big, strong, powerful government that can make you make decisions that affect your everyday life, whether you want them to or not, specifically because they don't believe they can convince people. You see, if they believe they could convince people, then they wouldn't be authoritarians. Because then they would just go, oh, I'll just convince people of it, and then I won't have to worry about it anymore. But Mayor Reed is such an authoritarian. He is so dialed into that idea that government should be making all your decisions for you or forcing you to make moral choices, or at least things that he sees as moral, that he basically says, no, I know my ideas aren't going to convince people, so I'm just going to jam it down your throat and you're going to like it or, you know, go somewhere else. See, but then when he doesn't get his way, all of a sudden he pitches a hissy fit. But that's where we stand right now. And really that comes down to Reed just cannot stomach the idea of somebody making a decision that he wouldn't make. He doesn't like the idea that there are people out there that believe differently than him or behave differently than him. And the irony is, while trying to pass a bill that he would say is all about love and tolerance, he shows that he has neither love nor tolerance. That he is so adamantly against anybody living in a way that he wouldn't deem as, as what he would want, that he's willing to try to make your life miserable to force you to comply with his version of morality. I mean, that's the ultimate intolerance. And he doesn't even see the irony in that, which is pretty hilarious. But speaking of crazy authoritarian leftists, we're going to go to national news here for a second. Terry McAlfie, he kind of accidentally says the quiet part out loud. So for those of you who don't know who Terry McAlfie is, you might look at this guy and since he's a Democrat candidate for governor and he's not an incumbent, you might think, okay, this is just like some rando or somebody that the Democrats put up. Uh-uh. This guy's been in the Democrat Party for a long, long time. He is the former governor of Virginia. He is the chairman of the, or was the chairman of the DNC for, I believe, four, six years, something like that. And he also was the campaign manager and chairman of Hillary's campaign in 2008. So this is a guy that has been around the Democrats forever. He's entrenched. He's part of the Washington Swamp, which, I mean, makes sense because the guy lives in in Virginia, and so he lives right there in, in the county right around where D.C. is. He's a very big political player on the national stage. Not really so much big in the sense that, you know, he's not, he doesn't have the name recognition of a Hillary Clinton or a Barack Obama or something like that, but believe me, 
this guy is part of the DNC machine and has been for a very long time. So this is not, nobody should dismiss this as, oh, that's just some random person that just happens to be a Democrat. No, this is a guy that is an accurate representation of Democrat ideals. And he accidentally says the quiet part out loud in a debate against his Republican opponent the other night in a gubernatorial debate. So we're going to go ahead and watch what he said the other night. This is Terry McAlfee. I believe parents should be in charge of their okay. kids' education. Mr. McAuliffe, 30 seconds. So first of all, this shows how clueless Glenn Youngkin is. He doesn't understand what the laws were because he's never been involved here in helping Virginia. But it was not. The parents had to write to veto bills, veto books, Glenn, not to be knowledge about it, also take them off the shelves. And I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually you take books out and make their own decisions. You vetoed it. So, to yeah, I parents, you stopped the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Well, there it is, guys. There you have it. I don't think parents should be telling schools what to teach. You know, we actually did a segment not too long ago about this. This was about a, you know, different teachers who have gone viral on TikTok saying that they want parents out of their business. They don't want parents telling them what to teach. They're not qualified to tell them what to teach. But this is one of the very few times, there might be some other instances that I'm just not aware of, but this is a major player in the Democrat Party just saying the quiet part out loud. You know what? I don't think parents should be telling schools what to teach at all. You should have no say in your child's education whatsoever. You should turn them over to the loving arms of the state and let us indoctrinate them with whatever we want, and then you'll get them back when you're 18. That's what he's saying, that they should have no influence on the schools. They shouldn't get to tell schools, no, I don't want you to teach that. And the thing that they're discussing there is a bill that would have allowed parents to get together and if they had enough of uh, enough people sign a petition and then voted out, that they had the ability to say that this book is, is not allowed in school. And by the way, I don't think that's unreasonable. Now, you know what a free speech advocate I am and, and how much I love the First Amendment, but there are certain things, especially for minors, that are just not appropriate in schools. You know, I have books, and I'm not even talking about things of a sexual nature or things that would ruin their innocence, even though we are going to talk about that here in a second. I'm just talking about certain materials I think is not right for a little kid. You know, there, there's certain books that uh, have graphic violence, descriptions of that in it. There's just certain things that ought to be off limits to kids. And I thought that that was something that as a society, pretty much all of us across the spectrum agreed with. We may disagree on what level or what age it's appropriate at. But at the end of the day, we all kind of had this idea that there were certain things kids should be able to consume and certain things that would be bad for them to consume. Apparently, especially those on the left, the only thing that they find would be problematic in a school would be the scripture. But that aside, this is what Terry McAlfee is saying. You see, I don't understand how somebody that has said this is still polling in like double digits in this state. Like that should have been the end of his campaign right there. There should be no parent that looks at that left or right and says, yeah, that that's our guy. That's who we want running the state of Virginia. And I say this to people on the left in the state of Virginia, which granted, I, I realize it's not a huge audience. I do have listeners in, Virgi in Virginia occasionally, but not often. <laughs> um, I, I have seen it pop up on the map before. But if there is anybody in Virginia or maybe, you know, some of my friends or former co-hosts who used to live in Virginia, I got to ask, like, 
seriously, le leftist in Virginia, do you not want any say over your kid's education? Do you really not want any recourse? Do you, do you just want to turn them over to the state and say, ah, the state will take care of it? You know, my dad, who was a teacher for 27 years in a public school, he always used to complain that so many parents treated them like a glorified babysitter. And what he meant by that is there were a lot of parents that really didn't want to be involved in their kids' education at all. They just saw that as the, the teacher's job. And so they pay taxes, and so they just turn them over to the teacher. Okay, teacher, they're yours. Do what you want to with them, and then you know bring them back to be educated. My dad, who was a fantastic teacher, won several Teacher of the Year awards. He actually wanted parents involved in his program. He, he asked for help. He went out and sought it out. He wanted input. He specifically had events tailored to and, and had them after school so that parents could come, even if they were working. I mean, good teachers want parental involvement. That's something that they're actually looking for. And politicians that know anything about education want to encourage that as much as possible as well. Not the Democrats, because for them, it's not about educating the kids. It's not about giving the kids what they want or helping the parents figure out how they can best help and aid in their child's education or even, you know, take, take a leading role in, in their child's education. For them, it's all about getting what we want. And for them, the best way of getting what they want, which is votes and loyal Democrat voters, is to indoctrinate them at a very young age and for parents not to be able to stop that. That is what they are trying to do here. And Virginia is really kind of the ground zero for this fight and what's going on here. Because at the end of the day, what this reflects is the mindset that your children actually belong to the state. They're not really your kids. They belong to the community. And because of that, it's the community's responsibility to educate and make sure that they're getting what they need. That's why you see like Black Lives Matter saying that their goal is to dissolve the nuclear family and have children really kind of grow up in sort of a community raising of them. That, that was something that was on their website. We've shown it on this show multiple times. You remember Hillary Clinton. Remember, she is his former boss. He helped run her campaign. These two are very tight. So it's not a surprise that they have similar ideologies about education for kids. She wrote the book, It Takes a Village, sort of centered around the idea that villages should be raising children, not mothers, not fathers, but the whole community should be parenting children and that they should have a say in that. Or you have people that even throughout history in the Democrat Party, Woodrow Wilson, remember, he, he's president from the early 1900s. He said, as the president of Princeton, it is my job to make students as unlike their fathers as I can. These people want to reprogram your children to think the way that they want, the way that suits their goals, not that reflects your values. And this is something that is prevalent and a theme that you see over and over and over again. This is why they oppose school choice. This is why they don't like homeschooling or private schools or charter schools, because anything that threatens their control over the education of your child is seen as a threat to them. And this is really interesting because if you look at things like school choice, they're one of the very few things that Americans tend to actually agree on. This is one that was conducted by Real Clear Politics. Uh, Real Clear Opinion was the, the department that actually did this particular one. But you look at the question there, school choice gives parents the rights to use tax, tax dollars designated for their child's education to send their child to public or private school 
which best serves their child's needs. Generally speaking, would you say you support or oppose this concept of school choice? 71% of Americans agree. And if you break it down by ethnicity, it doesn't tell a different story. The lowest that you have are blacks, black and Asians tied at 66%, but 66% is an overwhelming majority. It's two-thirds. Guys, we can't get 71% of Americans to agree on anything. And here's what's even more astounding. If you go at it by party ID, 69% of Democrats agree with the statement. Almost 70% of Democrats, their own party wants this and they refuse to allow it to happen because they understand that if they lose their indoctrination camp, they're not going to have an army of loyal Democrat voters dependent on the government to suit their needs later. That's why they oppose school choice, even though their own party supports it. It's absolutely astounding that they continue to do this and, and nobody votes them out of office or, or lets them get away. They just continue to let them get away with it, I guess. And uh, things have gotten really bad, really, really bad in Virginia. In Fairfax County, for example, there are books that are vividly describing and illustrating gay pedophilia, and they had to be removed here recently. Thank goodness that they actually were removed. But it was only after a mom actually went up to a, a school board meeting and showed them the illustrations. There's cartoons that literally illustrate sex acts. I, I, there, there's not another way to describe it. Here was the report that came uh, uh, of her doing this. This is from ABC News. Genderqueer, an illustrated memoir, contained explicit illustrations of oral sex and masturbation. The novel Lawn Boy, this is the other book that was in there, contains graphic descriptions of sex between men and children. Both books were previous winners of the American Library Association's Alex Award, which each year recognized, quote, 10 books written for adults that have special appeal to young adults ages 12 to 18. Langdon, this is the mom who brought this to the school board's attention, said that the fact that school board members felt compelled to interrupt her when she read graphic passages aloud illustrates her point about the book's inappropriate nature. So what that's talking about is in the process of her just reading straight out of the book, word for word, verbatim quotations, the school board had to say, ma'am, please stop. There are children here. And she was like, yeah, that's my point. This stuff is in our libraries and you won't let me say it here in the school board meeting because children are present. What does that say about you? And by the way, I wanted to show that clip. I really did. I, I downloaded it. I had every intention of showing it. But if I edited it to cut out all of the objectionable material, it'd just be a long series of bleeps. And so I didn't even show the clip just because of that, because there, there was nothing left to show after I edited and made it appropriate for this. Even if it had been heterosexual, even if it hadn't been gay or it hadn't been kids, that material does not need to be in schools. The way that it was described, the language that it used, I mean, it was absolutely disgusting. It, it, was, it was the kind of stuff you will find on a porn site. It really was. And this was in a school library for kids and won an award for being literature suitable for people ages 12 through 18. I can't read it. I can't discuss it. I put the, if you look down in the video description in the sources, if you want to watch it yourself, you can. But fair warning, it's rough. And in one of those books, there's actual pictures of it taking place. And somehow some person thought this was a good idea.
and approved it and put it in the library. They are going for your kids' souls. This isn't even just about them teaching them Marxism or, you know, a political ideology that opposes you. And this is what I've been saying for years. Socialism is a rival religion. They are fighting for the souls of your kids. And if you don't stand up and stop it, nobody's going to. Now, granted, I haven't seen things get this bad in the state of Alabama, and I hope that it doesn't. But this is happening in Virginia, which just a couple, well, really about 15-ish years ago, was considered a red state. It can happen fast. Don't think that you're immune to it just because you happen to be in a red state right now. And I, I got to be honest here. I thought that what Matt Walsh did was brilliant. So Matt Walsh, who is a conservative commentator, he has a show on Daily Wire. That's Ben Shapiro's outfit. Uh, Matt Walsh, who I don't always agree with, but I do think that he's actually uh, pretty funny. He decided that, you know, because he feels really strongly about this, as you can tell that I do, and he's a political commentator just like me, he was going to go to Virginia to speak at the school board meeting for them showing people, you know, having actual child porn and books describing sex acts between a man and a fourth grader. That is literally what happens in this book in their school library. And so he went down to discuss this and they changed the rules. They said, you know what? We don't want any outside agitators here. We don't want to hear from professional political commentators. We just want to hear from the parents. And so we're changing the rules so that Matt Walsh can't speak here. So then, and this is pretty hysterical, he actually leased a house there. And so he flies down. He actually has the lease of this house now. Um, he is a resident of the state of Virginia, apparently, now. And uh, then they said, okay, well, yeah, you have proof of residency or whatever, but we're going to change the rules again. This time to where you can only speak for 60 seconds. And so it's hilarious to me that their original rationale is, no, we just really want to hear from the parents. We, we only want to hear from the parents, and that's why we're going to make this new rule to where you have to be a resident here. And so if you're not a resident here, you can't come to the school board meeting. And they're like, uh, we're going to limit everybody to 60 seconds. Boy, they really want to hear from the parents. They want to <laughs> cut, them, cut everybody off at 60 seconds. And they actually said beforehand, uh, we're cutting the mic off at 60 seconds. Once you've hit the 60-second point, you can't talk anymore. These people are cowards, and they know that their position is indefensible, which is the reason that they hide. It's the reason that they do not want to have that discussion, because they know that what Matt Walsh is saying, and if you get a chance to look up his, his 60-second speech, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, look that up. But it, they're just a, such a bunch of hypocrites, because they say, we really want the parents' input, and we really want to hear from the parents, and then when Matt Walsh actually does what they ask and jumps through hoops for them, they go like, yeah, we don't really want to hear from the parents. We decided against that. Progressives always try to aid you out. And these people are no different. They're trying to build a barrier between you and your kid, and they're trying to create a wedge point because they know that if they do that, aging you out means you, your values die with you and your parent, your, sorry, your children don't share your values. Now, I'm extremely grateful that I grew up in a home where my values did come from my parents. That's not a bad thing. That's part of a parent's job is to, you know, teach you their values. And sometimes parents teach bad values and then it's up to the kid to unlearn those and learn good ones. But the point is, it is a parent's job to do the best that they can to convey good values, good morals, and good behavior onto their kids. 
The school wants to be the ones responsible for that instead of you. Don't let them. Keep in mind, a teacher, and I love teachers. I spent my entire life around teachers because my dad was one. But at the end of the day, a teacher is a government-funded assistant. You were in charge of your child's education, not them. They are there to assist you, and there's a lot of really good teachers out there. I, I could name a dozen of them just off the top of my head, just from teachers that I had or, or teachers I was associated with. But I'm telling you right now, they're a government assistant. They're there to assist you in the same way that I would say the same thing to parents going through a Bible program at my church. You were in charge of teaching your kids the Bible. We have Bible teachers here that will help you with that. But at the end of the day, that is your responsibility because you're the parent. The government wants to take that responsibility away from you and for you to just turn over your kids, sit down and shut up and don't tell us how to do our job. That's how they think of it. Because in their mind, their kid, that kid's really just as much of theirs as it is yours. You get them for, you know, a few hours a day. We, when, when they're in our building, we tell them whatever we want to and you don't have any say over it. That's how they think about this because they think of the child as being theirs as well. All right, so what we'll do is we'll take a quick break here and then we're going to come back with the Daily Dose of Stupid with Jen Psaki and our chaplain's report in just a moment on tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. Hey, where are you going? Champ? Slugger? Hey, cowboy. Where are you going? Where are you going? I'm going out! Hey, everybody. It's Caleb here, and I am driving back from Whataburger because Montgomery has one of those now. I could not be more stoked. I am absolutely thrilled about this. Mmm, so good. And, uh, you know, you're welcome, Montgomery. I... I put a lot of work and effort into it. I'm the one that really brought Whataburger to Montgomery. I think that everybody should be thanking me for that because I, I launched a two-year campaign to bring it to the capital city. I was very enthusiastic about it because I love Whataburger so much. I hate that it used to be in East Chase and left, and now it's back in East Chase again. Now, all joking aside, I think we all know that my campaign probably didn't have very much to do, if anything, with the decision to bring Whataburger to Montgomery. But it actually made me think of something that I was reading last night in the Gospel of Matthew. And in that, Jesus talks about what it really means. He's not presenting a new law. He's actually talking about an old law of Moses. To love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Now, the thing is, I really love Whataburger. But that really all comes from the heart, or more appropriately, the belly. I do have a passion for it, but that's just because I like the food. I mean, it doesn't really go any deeper than that. I just kind of love the burger. But did you know that in the original Hebrew, that love means to give? And so the truth is, you can't actually love a hamburger if you're using the Hebrew language. Because what love means is to give. And the hamburger can give to you in a sense because you're eating it and it provides nourishment, but you can't give to the hamburger. The hamburger is an inanimate object. And so I think that sometimes we as English speakers, our use of the word love sometimes doesn't exactly convey 
what the scripture means when it says love, because it means it in the very specific context of, of something that is done for somebody else. And that's not really something that you get from the English version of the word. And we understand that in the Greek, the highest form of love, because there's five different terms used for love in Greek, the highest one is agape, which is the highest godlike form of love. It's the perfected version of love where you are willing to sacrifice for the other person. And so in both of these instances, there's a much broader understanding of what it means to love something or someone. I say that I love Whataburger, but if we're talking about it in the biblical sense, if we're talking about it in the language of Hebrew or Greek, I can't love Whataburger. That's not how love works because it conveys something much stronger and deeper than that. And I was thinking when I, I thought about those three aspects of what it means to love God, where Jesus says we're supposed to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. Frankly, I think I'm pretty good at loving God with my mind. I'm not saying that I've perfected it, and I don't think any human being can love God with the finite mind that, that doesn't understand every aspect of everything like God does because he's all-knowing. But I think it's important that Jesus points all these three things out. He's not just making a point about loving God with the whole self, even though that message is there too. He's saying that these things specifically contribute to loving God in a certain way. And what he means by that is, think about it. To love God with all of your heart means to have a passion for him. Kind of the love that I was talking about with, with Whataburger, now in, in a much more serious way. But that you should love God in the way that you desire a person that you really like, or a person that you really like to be around. That there should be an excitement, there should be a desire to be in God's presence, to worship him and to obey him. Somebody that only loves God with their heart, though, they're quickly going to be drawn into some kind of emotionalism where they might love an aspect of God, but really they kind of mold God into the thing that they want. Because if you don't have the other two parts, it's very easy to make an idol of God and make God just like you. And so what happens is they, the people that love God with their heart, but just their heart, they say that they love God, but they really just kind of love the image of God and they sort of make God into a lovable thing without accepting the aspects that might be more difficult to understand or you might need to use your soul to love. Then there's the aspect of the soul. People that only love God with their soul are quickly drawn into mysticism. They wind up just kind of chasing emotional highs and trying to constantly do new things because that's what makes them feel more spiritual. They're not actually chasing the real God, they're chasing the experience and the idea of God without actually getting into the other parts of it. And then this is the one that I have to worry about more than the other two. For somebody that only loves God with their mind, God becomes a thing to be understood or a subject to study. And that becomes a problem because they just look at God as a, a subject matter to master, like biology or astronomy or something like that. But God is not just a subject to master, he is a master to be subject to. And that's a very different thing. Loving God only with your mind just means that you know God academically, and that's just not enough. That's not what God actually called us to be. But see, when you love God the way Jesus instructs us, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, then God won't just be a religious experience, he won't just be a thing that you can have strong affection for, and he won't just be 
a topic of study to understand. You can have a personal relationship with him just the way Jesus did. And if we want to understand how to love God the way Jesus did, we don't need to look any further than his life. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, we have the press secretary for the Biden administration, Jen Psaki. Apparently, she doesn't really understand basic economics. Let's watch. Um, I want to ask you about what Republicans are pointing to in the analysis from the Joint Committee on Taxation. Mm -hmm. They say, according to, if I've read the chart correctly, more than 16% of taxpayers would see their taxes increase under the, the, the bill that's approved by the House Ways and Means Committee. Will the president sign that bill if, as it is coming out of that committee, or will he insist on the changes so that he will maintain his commitment that taxes won't go up on people making $400,000 a year? I have not looked at the uh, document or the report that you have put out. Obviously, the president's, or that you have referenced, I should say, that the Republicans put out. Uh, obviously, the president's commitment remains not raising taxes for anyone uh, making less than $400,000 a year. There are some, and I'm not sure if this is the case in this report, who argue that in the past, companies have passed on these costs to consumers. I'm not sure if that's the argument being made in this report. We feel that that's unfair and absurd, and the American people would not stand for that. Okay, so this is dumb on a couple of levels. First of all, it's dumb because she admits twice in this very brief clip that she is attacking an argument that she isn't sure if anyone's even actually made. So the idea here is that this guy is asking, well, the report that we see from the Republicans uh, in the House that are on the committee for the House Ways and Means Committee, <clears throat> for this specific thing, they're looking at this bill and saying, actually, if this were put into place, in other words, if this were passed and Joe Biden signed it, it would, re it would result in a tax increase for 16% of Americans. And considering that he promised not to raise taxes on any American that was making less than $400,000 a year, and also considering that that only constitutes literally just 1% of the entire U.S. population, there's 15% in there that are making less than 400000 a year. And so it's crystal clear that if this thing passes and Joe Biden signs it into law, he will be breaking his promise of not raising taxes on anyone. But see, instead of just saying, I haven't seen that report, I'm not sure exactly what the rationale is, but the president is committed not to doing that, which would have actually been a fine answer. She starts attacking an argument that she admits twice. She has no idea whether or not this paper makes or not. And the argument is that when you raise taxes on businesses or business owners, and it's not even talking about big, big business owners, it's talking about anybody, you raise taxes on literally any business it's going to cause a price increase. And so she starts attacking that argument that if, ta if, if we start taxing people, that they're going to increase their prices. 
And her attack that she does mount is really bad, and we'll get to that into a second. But my point is, she's attacking something that she doesn't even know if anyone's making that point, which is always a really dumb strategy. And I say this as someone who's a debater. And so that's your first really, really dumb thing that happens here, because that direct taxation increase for 16% of Americans is going to affect more than just the people that are making over 400000 But the price increases affect everybody. If you increase taxes on Walmart and every and Walmart has to increase its prices, that affects everybody because even people that don't shop at Walmart are going to be impacted by that. It's going to slow down the economy. It's going to cause people to hire less. I mean, that has a ripple effect. And this is one thing that it seems like liberals don't understand, like they just don't get it. The economy is like a pond. It's not a stagnant thing. It's constantly moving. It's constantly interacting with other parts of the economy, you cannot throw a rock in a pond and it doesn't affect the pond as a whole. That has a ripple effect. Now, it's going to affect certain parts more than others. That is true. But you can't isolate it to one thing. And, and so they constantly are saying things like, well, we just need to tax the rich. What do you think that's going to do? Is it going to affect the rich most? Yeah, it is. But that doesn't mean it's not going to have other negative consequences on down the road. This thing has a rippling effect. And so, for whatever reason, re Republicans have a really hard time understanding, or sorry, well, actually, Republicans have a hard time understanding that sometimes too, but Democrats especially have a hard time understanding that. But I'm going to go ahead and just in a few seconds give you a complete education on the most basic of economic principles, literally the first rule of business that Jen Psaki does not understand. Now, I am by no means somebody that is classically trained in economics. I had a few economics classes at Auburn. But one class that I had, Ag Econ, my professor came in the very first day, taught me this rule, and it completely debunks everything Jen Psaki just said. First of all, you have revenue, you have cost, and you have profit. And the equation that helps you understand how much profit you have is that revenue, that's how much total money you take in, minus your cost, that's how much it costs to do business, equals profit. Whatever you got left over at the end of the day, that is your profit. Tax, regardless of what Jinsaki wants to say, is a cost. And so if you look at that equation, when cost goes up and your revenue remains stagnant, let's just pretend that revenue doesn't go down, which it probably will if you see a tax increase. Let's just pretend that it stays static. So that's the best case scenario possible. When that happens, your profit decreases because your cost went up. It is not possible for businesses to not do something in that situation. Now, it can be price increases, and it almost always is, but it's usually a combination of strategies to try to deal with it. But she just acts like, well, these, these terrible, greedy companies, they're just being unfair and, and completely unreasonable by, you know, us doubling their tax burden and not, you know, just keeping prices the way they are. Businesses are not a charity. They're not a job program. They're not there to distribute goods to people at no cost to them. It's a business. They have to make profit or they cease to be a business. That's how this works. It's not like they, they want to paint this picture in the minds of the American people. That somewhere in the headquarters of Amazon and Google and Walmart and Target and all these other places, they just have like a giant money room with large stacks of gold coins 
Uh, you ever seen Aladdin? You know, the Cave of Wonders when they walk down and there's just like giant mountains of gold coins. That's what they want you to think the inside of Walmart's coffers look like. And that they just have all this money that they're greedily hoarding and keeping from everybody. And when they tax that money, they should just be able to go right into their stores and take it out. And then it's not going to affect their business practices. That's not how a business operates. There's no business that operates that way because if they were hoarding that much money and not doing anything with it, they would go out of business. They use it to invest and to grow and, and to do all kinds of things. But they're not just hoarding a giant stack of cash somewhere. And because people on the left seem to think that and operate off that premise, that's why their policies don't make any sense. But, you know, since Jin Saki apparently slipped through this lesson in basic economics, I guess I have to go through it with you now. So here's a really interesting graphic that helps explain all of this. This is from the American uh, Enterprise Institute. And they were looking at a survey of how much profit margin the average American thought the average business did. So they think that the average business operates on 36%, so a little bit more than a third of all the revenue goes right into their pocket, according to the average American. The problem is that's five times what it actually is. The total market is roughly 7.9% profit margin. And then there's some businesses like Walmart that operate off, and remember Walmart is America's largest employer. They employ more people than any other company in America. They operate off of a 2% profit margin. Now, you may look at that and go, Caleb, how on earth does a massive, incredibly wealthy company like Walmart operate on a 2% profit margin? Well, it's, it's actually quite simple. Now, this is not exact math and exact economics. I just had to, to pull some easy numbers, but this is just to give you an illustration. So don't look at these numbers as necessarily being real. They were just kind of a close estimation uh, to what I could do. Walmart has a total value company-wide of being uh, of about $325 billion. So let's just say for the sake of argument that that is how much revenue they bring. And I know that that's not the case. I understand economics and that that's not true. I'm just using this as an example because I figured, you know, you could ballpark it somewhere there. Um, their, their actual revenue is actually way more than that, but they have enough cost to offset it. But anyway, let's, let's just pretend that their revenue is like, you know, $325 billion. So that would mean they make, what, $4.5 in profit? Okay, well, you would say, Caleb, that, that's a lot of money. That's, you know, way more than I'll ever see. And yeah, I understand, me too. I'll, I'll never see anything close to that. But what do they actually use that money for? Well, they use it for things like investing in different companies, different technologies. They have to do research and development. Uh, they use it for things like hiring new people and building new stores and coming up with new concepts. Like just a few years ago, we didn't have Walmart grocery pickup and now we do. Just a few years ago, we didn't have things like a Walmart that almost all of its registers are self-checkout. Now we do. Now in a lot of Walmarts, you actually have only a few checkout lanes and it's almost all self-checkout, which frankly I think is a massive improvement. And it makes going to Walmart a lot better because I don't have to wait in line for 30 minutes. And so they do things like that with it. You see, when you cut into the profit margin with taxation, now all of a sudden they have less money to play around with. And so they may have to hold off for a few years on that innovation. Or there may be some innovations like the self-checkout that saves them so much on the labor side, they actually opt to do that faster 
than they would have because it's the only way that they can save enough money in the long run by firing a bunch of people. And so it speedboats, um, sort of pushes the accelerator on automation to the point to where they develop that technology even more quickly because when before it was just cheaper to pay a person, now with new regulations or new taxes, it may be cheaper to pay a person now, but it will actually save them more money if they just automate as fast as they can. Um, the minimum wage tends to accelerate that more than anything else, much more so than taxes. But you understand what I'm going with this. You see that what, what's actually happening here is when all of a sudden they get squeezed on the taxation part, they have to figure out what they're going to do with their profit. And if their corporate rate jumps from 21%, which it is currently, to 39%, which it was before the Trump tax cuts, that would mean they have about $765 million less to play around with, less to invest, less to grow their business, less to reach out to communities. And here's another thing. You wonder why such a big company like Walmart operates off a 2% profit margin? It's because their whole business model is built around keeping prices low. You see, the reason that Walmart operates at a much lower profit margin than the average company and is still able to be successful is because their constant goal is cutting costs as much as possible. That's why the service isn't always great at Walmart, because they don't really focus on that. They focus on giving you the lowest price possible. And they've always done that. that that's been their mantra for a while. Their, their company slogan... Oh, <laughs> knocked over my water bottle. Their company slogan is low prices. And so they've always been about that. See, the funny thing about this is the prices that get passed along, that hurts lower income people the most because it's companies that operate at that low profit margin that tend to serve poor communities. They're serving the masses. You know, your yacht retailer probably doesn't have to raise prices all that much. But when you got to buy school supplies for your kid at Walmart, because it's the only place you can afford, and all of a sudden their prices went up by two, three, four percent, well, that may not seem like a lot to a rich person, but to a poor person that's spending an extra 20, 30, 40 dollars on school supplies, that cuts into their paycheck a lot more. That's a much larger percentage of their total income. And so, ironically, not only is this not something that exclusively hurts the poor when they tax them, it actually hurts poor, sorry, hurts the rich because that's their intended goal. It actually winds up hurting the poor quite a bit when they raise prices. And the idea that she thinks it's, it's ridiculous and absurd, she just thinks that, well, you should take, you, you should just make less money. A lot of businesses can't do that. If you're operating at a 2% profit margin, you don't have a whole lot of wiggle room there. And Walmart's not the best example because they are so big and are so profitable, but let's say you're a mom and pop place. Do you know that most restaurants, which are typically small businesses, they operate off of an average of three to 5% profit margin. And that's if you're a really, really successful restaurant. There's a lot of them that don't turn profit for multiple years on end. Even some big companies are like that. Amazon actually didn't turn a profit a couple of years ago. I mean, they had enough to sustain them to where they could get to where they could turn a profit. But even Amazon, which is one of the, the biggest companies in America, sometimes they have down years where they don't do it. Now, now they're making money hand over fist because of the pandemic. But the point is, even big companies like that that employ thousands of people, sometimes they operate off of a very small, mar uh, very small margin of error too. And when you cut into that with corporate taxes, they got to do something. 
And that's the thing that Jen Psaki doesn't seem to understand. She, she thinks of that money as, there, as, as hers and that she just needs to go in and take it and you should just take that loss. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. And by the way, if they don't do something like raise prices, you know what the other options are? Well, I'm going to tell you right now. Uh, companies really only have three ways to respond to an increase in cost. And taxes, like I said, are an increase in cost. One, they have to increase their revenue. Again, we're going back to that same basic thing that my econ professor taught me on day one. Revenue minus cost equals profit. It's just as simple as that. Now, it can get super complicated in the world of, of corporate America, but at the end of the day, it all boils down to that equation right there. And so companies really only have three ways to respond to that. One, they have to increase their revenue, which is exactly what we're talking about. They have to increase their prices. They have to increase their production somehow. They have to have less sales, less specials, things like that. They can't give things away as often. They have to be less charitable. They have to figure out a way to increase their revenue. And so the way to do that typically is to increase their prices and to, to have fewer things where they discount things. So they have to charge more for the product or good or service that they are producing. The second way to do that is to decrease cost. So the way that they do that is they fire people. That's the most common one. Usually cutting your labor costs is the very first thing that you do. Uh, there's other ways to do it too. You can automate, like I said, Walmart does that with the, the self-checkout thing. A lot of companies are trying to find ways to automate and to lower their labor costs that way. Uh, they can lower the, the quality of their products. Uh, you know, if you're a food company, you may have to lower your portion size or you may have to do something else. Uh, lower quality service. That's something that they do. Customer service, they may have to cut some corners there, you know. Maybe we got to outsource our customer service line to Bangladesh because it's too expensive to do it in America. That happens a lot, actually, because it is more expensive to do that. So outsourcing is a way to decrease cost. And then the third option that they have is make less do with less profit, which, again, I guess that's what Jinsaki is hoping that they do. And it sounds easy if you've never actually done it before. But if they do that, that means they're going to have less advance, uh, less advancement advancement, less investment, less spending. There's going to be less new technology that they develop. So they, they may have to cut back on R&D, things like that. So if they have less profit, that's what that's going to result in. And it also means that they're going to be more cautious when it comes to things like investing in ventures that could invent new technology that offers better products or do things like hire new people. You know, maybe with less profit, they don't go for that next big expansion that they were going to do, uh, they were going to do or expand into new markets because they don't have as much profit as a cushion to be able to do that. And so there's all kinds of things. And that's the point. All three of these options, really bad for the economy. There are no good options at that point. And that's why taxation is such a poison because I understand that there has to be some level of taxation and I'm not against that at all. But when you increase taxes, even if it's just a little bit, and even if the overall tax rate is low, you have to understand companies are going to react to it in one of these three ways. And none of those things is good for the economy, which is the reason we should keep taxes as low as humanly possible and spend absolutely bare minimum amount of what we have to spend. That's the point. But Jinsaki doesn't understand that because she and her liberal colleagues don't live in the real world. They think politically, not in reality. They think, well, we'll Companies should just give us the money and take the loss. Yeah, well, that doesn't work. You can't do that. You know, the, the numbers are real tangible things. I, I know to you people, you think, 
well, let's just print more money. It's no big deal. Yeah, companies can't do that. They think about things politically and they think, well, we should say what people want to hear so that they vote for us in the next election. And that's why they say things like tax the rich and that it's it's ridiculous and absurd and unfair that companies would do that. No, it's it's just what they have to do to stay alive. And if they don't do that, then you have people get fired or you have people losing their job to animation or, or animation, <laughs> automation, <laughs> watching too many cartoons. Um, or you see prices increase. Like th th there's not a way around this when you're dealing with real money and a real budget and a real economy, and you're not you know, just playing pretend with imaginary numbers like they're doing with the budget now, apparently. Reality has to set in at some point. And the truth is, it's going to set in for the politicians at some point, too. Unfortunately, we're all going to suffer when that happens. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Our Chaplain's Report today does continue our series in 1 Samuel. So we're going to go ahead and look at that, but just to set things up for you in case you weren't here last time. Saul was pursuing David, and he stopped off in a cave. David saw this after God promised to put his enemy into his hands. And he had the opportunity to kill Saul, but chose not to. So instead, he just cut off a little segment of his robe, and then later walked off and decided, no, I don't need to do this. So what he did was he took it back to Saul and showed him his robe to show him, look, Saul, I was this close to you. I don't mean you any harm. I could have killed you if I wanted to. It wouldn't have been that hard. And yet I chose not to because I, I don't want to do anything wrong to you. I, I want this to work out. So here we're going to look at Saul's reaction. This comes from 1 Samuel 24 verses 16 through 22. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul raised his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt maliciously with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord handed me over to you, and yet you did not kill me. Though if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will certainly be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not eliminate my name from my father's household. And David swore an oath to Saul. Then Saul went to his home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the first time in Scripture where Saul acknowledges that he's done wrong. Or did he? If you'll look back at verse 19 here real quick, you see how it says there, if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away unharmed? It's hard to read 
connotation and sarcasm and tone in text. And I'm not sure exactly what's being said here, but you can read it a couple of different ways. And, and one of the ways that I, I think that is probably the most prevalent is whether it's sarcastic or whether he is, is genuinely asking the question, maybe he's afraid and he's saying, are, are you, you going to let me go now? I could kind of see it going that way, but I don't think that's actually how Saul intended it because A, he's kind of got the upper hand here because the element of surprise is gone and he has a much bigger army. And second, he knows David already had the opportunity to kill him. He knows because he sees the robe in his hand. David could have killed him anytime he wanted to. And he opted not to. And so I guess you could read it that way, but I tend to read it more like this. He's saying, okay, David, you don't seem to mean any harm towards me, and I guess I'm wrong for doing this, but am I really? I think Saul's trying to justify a little bit. Like, he's trying to explain, because David just asked him this question. He's like, why are you pursuing me? You're pursuing me like a, a dead dog? Like, like I'm some kind of threat to you? I've, I've never been anything but loyal to you. Why would you think that I want to kill you? And Saul's kind of doing a couple things here. I think first he's justifying saying, well, you know, I am your enemy and I know. Yeah. You're the one that started pursuing him though. Like if David is your enemy, the only reason he is, is because of you, because of your own paranoia. So maybe that's it. I tend to think that the most accurate reading of this, and I think the sentiment that is coming from Saul the most is he's gotten to a place where he is so fixated on David as being his mortal enemy. He's kind of sitting there asking, is like, are you really going to let me go? Are you, are you really just letting me go right now? And you're going to come back and, and get revenge on me later? Or you're just setting me up? Like, Based on Saul's paranoia thus far, I think that's the most accurate thing. I think he's thinking, well, David's going to do something to me. And so like, probably after he's king, he's going to kill all my descendants, right? And that's why you see the oath come. He says, you got to swear to me, you're not going to kill every member of my family and just cut off my name from my father's house and, and destroy all of my descendants. First of all, that's dumb because he should know by now that he and Jonathan are, are like brothers. And he's also married to his daughter. And I know that technically he could stay married to his daughter and his daughter would produce sons, but they would be David's offspring and, and part of his family and not necessarily part of Saul's because that's how it's determined. But still, he has the opportunity here to kill him and chooses not to. And all Saul's worried about, okay, well, what's his real motivation? Is he going to kill all the people after I'm gone? Is he, is he going to cut off my name from, from my household? What is David really going to do to me? Maybe I'm reading a little too much into it, and I don't think it's wrong to read it the other ways. And I think it's good to explore those options. I'm just saying that based on everything that we've seen and the context here, I think Saul still has some paranoia in the back of his mind that is, is trying to do this, because I don't think he would ask this oath of David if he really knew David or really believed his intentions were pure. But in Saul's defense, I think this is important. In Saul's defense, this was the M.O. for people of this time. When you were a king and you led a rebellion and a new royal family was installed, you murdered everybody else. So that there were no legitimate heirs, nobody that could come up later and say, ah, see, I'm, I'm the true king here. And so you need to go because you're a usurper. 
that's why you see it throughout the Middle Ages. I mean, th this happens thousands of years afterward. This was just the way that the world operated. And so you can kind of forgive Saul for thinking that that's at least a possibility or letting that cross his mind. And I think also when we have a problem or a spiritual weakness, we tend to project that onto other people. One thing that I noticed when I was a kid is that if you looked around in a test, the ones that were most apt to cheat are the ones that also were very protective of their own answers. So like the kids that just didn't think about it or would never think about cheating, they were just kind of doing it casually. But the ones that were cheating, they were the ones that had their arm around their paper and were making sure nobody could see their answers because they were paranoid about it because they knew if they were in that position, they would cheat too. And I think the reason that Saul is paranoid about this is because if the tables were reversed and Saul took the throne from David's family, there wouldn't be somebody related to David or like said hi to David at a, you know, at, <laughs> um, passing by the marketplace at one point. Like everybody that had any connection to David would be dead. And I think Saul knows that. And that's the reason that he's asking for this. So I think really there is some sincere emotion here. I don't want to discount that. I think that Saul really does understand that David is, I mean, that that was a morally pretty admirable thing that he did there that he did not have to do. And it proves that he really loves God and, and loves Saul. And I think that Saul is touched by that. And I think that that's genuine and, and talking about him weeping. And I think he realizes that he's done some pretty dumb things. And, and I think maybe he realizes that David at the very least isn't nearly the threat that he thought that he was to his power or his throne, or his life. So I think there's some sincerity there, but a person usually doesn't change in a moment like that. And so the other parts of Saul that have been festering inside his soul for this long, the envy, the vengeance, the, the wrath, the, those are all welling up inside of him. And that doesn't go away just because a gesture of good deed is, a gesture and a good deed is extended to him. There's still a presence there, and I think that's the part of him that's really talking right now. I do think that he really does mean it when he says, I see now why this guy's going to be king. I get it. Lord, I understand, because he knows. He knows that the reason that he is not going to be king anymore is because of his own disobedience. Then he's looking at David, who would not have been outside of God's will to have taken his life right there, and he goes, you know what? He had an opportunity. He was approved by God, still didn't take it. Um, God, I get it. I understand why this guy's your pick now. And maybe comparing David's righteousness to his own, which seems to be what's going on here, is the reason that he's so upset. Because he understands the depths of his own depravity by comparing it to somebody who truly has a heart for God and wants to do what God tells him to do. And that makes him even more aware of his own sin and rebellion. So is he really sure that David is going to be king? Or is this an insurance policy? I tend to lean with the observation that I just made that I really do think that he believes that David is going to be king. But maybe if there's still that doubt lingering in the back of his head, sort of that evil part that I was talking about, all the things that he's felt towards David that have been in his soul this long, there, there's still a presence there and they're still kind of talking at this point. I do think that Saul is maybe here asking for an insurance policy like, okay, maybe he's going to be king, maybe he's not, but if he is, I'm going to make him swear this oath to me. You know, not that he could make him, but I'm going to request that he swear this oath to me that he's not going to cut off my descendants. But even if that is it, 
even if that is part of Saul's calculation and he really is just as evil and, and bitter as anybody in the Bible and there's really no sincerity here, I don't think that that's the case. But if there if that were true, I think it shows that there is still some little part of Saul that still trusts David and knows that he's right. I think that's accurate. There is some part of Saul, the Saul that we saw early on in the narrative, the Saul that really did want to be the kind of king that God saw in him and God wanted him to be. There is a little part of Saul in there that still remains, that knows David is right and he is trustworthy and he really never has done anything to try to hurt me. And so there's an element of that. And so there's all these conflicting emotions and, and conflicting ideas sort of floating around inside Saul when that happens. And that's why he, he kind of has a little bit of a breakdown there. And you see sort of an outpouring of this mixture of emotion. And that happens to us a lot. You know, we, we can have several emotions at once and sometimes they just kind of all spill out at the same time. Um, and, and that seems to be what's happening to Saul here. But sort of looking ahead to the end of the story, I don't want to give anything away and, and maybe we'll cover this in a different chaplain's report. But the truth is David had every intention of keeping his word and he wouldn't have even had to have sweared the vow. David would have done the right thing regardless. He loved Saul. He loved Jonathan. I think to some degree, maybe not the, the level that he should have, he loved McCall, his wife. I think that he loved her a little less after they kind of had a falling out later on in the story. But the point is, David didn't hate Saul and he didn't hate his family and he didn't want to cut him off. He wanted what God wanted, which is for him to ascend to the throne, but he did not hate Saul. Never did. This is a masterclass in loving your enemy, blessing someone that curses you, treating someone well when they don't deserve it. That's an extension of grace, and that's what God has been trying to communicate to Saul ever since he started defying him. He wanted Saul to be the kind of king that could have had a legacy, and, and maybe even we would have seen the legacy of Christ come through Saul if that had been the case. God didn't want Saul to be cast as the villain. But Saul refused to do what God asked. And at that point, there wasn't a whole lot God could do to make him into a good king. So he chose someone else. And we see the results of that and how it hurt a lot of people around him, including David. So all David is doing here is keeping his word and, and refusing to do harm to Saul or to anybody that was a family member of his, even though there was nobody that would have thought any less of him. Like I said, this was just the standard operating for separate standard operating procedure for people of the day. If Saul had just shown up to the palace and wiped out the entire royal family because he didn't want any heirs hanging around and pretending like they were the rightful king, his generals, his people probably wouldn't have thought any less of him because that's just the way they, they did things back then. Not saying it was okay, just saying that that was kind of accepted and, and socially what you did. But see, David didn't want to go by the world standard. He wanted to go by God's standard, and that's what made him different, and that's the reason that God wanted him to be king. You see, I think what that really shows, because you do see a little bit of old Saul coming back. You see a little glimmer of the kind of Saul that we saw early on in this, the Samuel narrative. Why? How did, after all this in this dark place that we've seen Saul gradually go down this whole time, how do you get a little glimpse of that back? It's because David treated him like the old Saul. We as Christians are told to love our enemies. It's a commandment that Jesus gave himself. 
if we really want to pull that off, if we really want to love our enemies and show them compassion and kindness, I think that this shows what kind of effect it can have on them. Now, Saul did not repent. He did not come back. He didn't become the person that God would have wanted him to, even though he had an opportunity to at this point and chose not to. But the point is, he came close. Even in the darkness that Saul had put himself in, there's a glimmer of light and an opportunity to come back to the person that he was always meant to be because David showed a little love to him and he treated him like the Saul that he knew he could be instead of the Saul that he had become. And I think God does the same thing for us. If we want to bring out the best in people, we have to treat them like they're worth something. We have to treat them like the person we know that they could be or the person that they used to be as opposed to the person that they are. That doesn't necessarily mean we're naive or that we're like that all the time, but if that's the goal, then that's something we're going to have to do. And even somebody as lost and paranoid and evil as Saul had a little glimmer of his old self there for a little bit because that's how David talked to him. It brought him back for a few seconds. And if we want to have that kind of impact on people we know, even our enemies, that's the example that we have to follow. You see, even our enemies, even if they don't like us, even if they, in David's case, literally wanted him dead, even they will respect us if we live a godly life. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delrada Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.